2: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast@spymuseum.org. at spy That's spycast@spymuseum.org. at spy Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make Spycast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Audra Wolfe, who's a writer, editor, and historian based in Philadelphia. With a background in both science, she has a BS in chemistry and history, a PhD in history and sociology of science. She has been thinking through the relationship between science and power for more than two decades. Her first book, Competing with the Soviets, Science, Technology, and the State in Cold War America, which came out in 2013, explored the power of science and technology as stuff, weapons, rockets, labs, and so on. Her newest book focuses on the fascinating and disturbing topic of propaganda and psychological warfare, Freedom's Laboratory, the Cold War Struggle for the Soul of Science. Welcome, Audra. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks for having me on. So I I, want to ask this question because it's... To me, it jumped out, and I have a little bit of a background in this, as as some people may know. Uh, There are hundreds of books about the cultural battles of the Cold War, everything from the culture of Cold War, kind of the famous book you know, from the 90s at this point, uh, to books focusing on the CCF, which we'll talk about, books focusing on everything from rock and roll music to American movies. So why do we need another book? Why did you decide to write this one?
0: Well, there's remarkably little in those books about science. Um, I think my favorite book about um, the culture of Cold War, particularly when it involves uh, covert work, is uh, Hugh Wilford's The Mighty Wur- Wurlitzer. And that book is in many ways comprehensive, mm-hmm. except it has nothing about science right. in it. And I think the absence of science from these stories um, comes from two places. Uh, the first actually has to do with how the covers were blown. And, and we can talk more about that later, but I think it's, it's relevant for what ends up in the stories. Um, but the second is more of a uh, just an understanding of what it means to talk about culture. A lot of these books treat culture as if it only means arts and letters. And these mid-century propagandists had... Uh, much more ambitious uh, ideas about what culture meant. And they were, in a lot of ways, working with um, anthropologist notions of culture as a system of, uh, like as a cultural system. Mm -hmm. Um, So science is part of that. Science and technology were extraordinarily important parts of American life. And if the goal was to transform other societies to make them look more like the United States, that meant propaganda about science and technology.
2: What's interesting to me, I always look at this as, as a science literacy issue as well. Where there are a lot of historians who just don't have, who just feel uncomfortable talking about science, even if it's in a very broad sense, because a lot of people go into history because they don't want to do biology and chemistry and other things, and so there is kind of a niche. People like yourself and me—I taught history of science at the University of Maryland—who can kind of see how they come together, but it's not all that common.
0: No, I, I totally agree with that, and I think. You know, what I just said almost implies as if all these historians have made active choices about defining science at a culture. And, you know, in some ways, the answer to that question is just much more straightforward, that these were not the archives that these historians have been looking at. Mm-hmm. They've been looking at other things. But I think that that question of historical literacy also goes the other way. And a lot of historians in, of science and technology, in my experience, don't understand that some of the uh, foundations that show up in grants were part of these uh, part of these cover operations. And so I've seen accounts written by historians that just talk about some of these groups as if they're completely, like as if they're really groups of private citizens. Right. And, and so that conversation both goes, goes both ways. And so I think both historians of science and diplomatic and intelligence historians can learn a lot from each other.
2: Well, yeah, the magic, the money just magically appears in right, the tens right. of thousands <laughs> from, you know, private citizens.
0: Absolutely. What's
2: interesting is that because of this, there's, there's been a consensus among a lot of historians that and this is something that even non-history of science people and even non-diplomatic history people look at, is the scientists who kind of stay out of politics in the 1950s and 60s and the McCarthy era were like the heroes. And you look at, like, the Oppenheimer trial and others who, you know, I'm going to rise above it. I'm going to stay at that. And, and that's nonsense, as you point out. Um, I mean, you talk about Bentley Glass as a good example of this, but that's not just him. It's kind of across the board where, because of the covert nation, nature of some of these programs... It's important that we take a second look because kind of the conventional wisdom is nonsense. It's been flipped on its head by the opening of some of these archives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole generation of scientists who I came to think of as sort of international men of science. And these men, and they were mostly men, not all, but mostly, Um, Part of what they would do would be go out on the international stage and talk about how um, scientists had certain freedoms in the United States. They would be outspoken critics of McCarthyism. Some of them, people like Oppenheimer, were even victims of Mm -hmm. McCarthyism. But at the same time, they were absolutely perfect figures to be on the international stage, to say, look, in the United States, scientists can behave that way. Scientists can oppose the government, and they can still be functional, influential scientists.
2: And it turns out they they weren't as is penalized for being internationalist or they weren't as penalized for being quote unquote anti-government because they were still being funded in many ways by government entities.
0: Yeah, well, you mentioned Bentley Glass, and he's a fascinating case. He's really, um, he was really the way into this story for me because this was a guy who did all of the things in the 1950s that were supposed to get him in trouble. He was the uh, uh, president of the Maryland ACLU for 10 years. He was on the Baltimore County School Board during uh, Brown v. Board. Um, He had contributed to certain very small civil rights campaigns and had a, a fairly large FBI file for that. But at the same time, he was um, advising so many government agencies. He was a, uh, one of the senior advisors for biology and medicine to the Atomic Energy Commission for many years. He had a very high clearance. And his career just kept prospering even while he was in the newspapers for getting in fights about not signing loyalty oaths. And I wanted to understand, what's going on with this guy? How does he get away with this? You know, He was very religious. I wondered, was it something about his uh, his moral reputation? Or is he useful in other ways? And right. I think in the end, it's some combination of all of those things. He does seem like a, a fairly unique character. Um, but he was also more than happy to assist uh, both overt and, and covert groups, uh, and working with both state and intelligence, um, in if it would be helpful to the government's needs. Because he was an anti-communist. Mm-hmm. He just didn't want anti-communism to go all the way over to McCarthyism.
2: Right. On the other end of the spectrum, there's conventional wisdom out there among conspiracy theorists. And a temptation to think of all these organizations. I mean, from Brookings to the AAAS to the Girl Scouts were knowingly involved the Central Intelligence Agency in pushing out these programs during the Cold War. You know, and and it's tempting if you look at the documents because a lot of the funding came in, like we joked about, not really asking where the money is coming from. Um, But you argue that there's a difference between knowing where the money is coming from and being an actual willing partner with like, the CIA and doing propaganda around the world.
0: Yes, I do argue that there's a difference. At the same time, I'm really sympathetic to that sense of, wow, what's happening is everything controlled by the CIA. And in the book, I even talk at one point about uh, what I call that sense of contact paranoia. Um, the first time that I saw the finding list for the uh, archival collections of the Asia Foundation, which are um, housed at the Hoover Institution, um, this it's a 200 to 400 page list um, of organizations that they were working with and it does include the Girl Scouts. It includes suicide prevention groups. It includes every learned scientific society you can think of. and when I saw that list for the first time it was it was definitely unsettling and I thought i don't I don't understand what's happening here and why are they doing this and what, what's going on and it was um, that that was another key moment where I really had to kind of sit with um, what was happening here, how were... Um, how were the people involved understanding it? And what were these groups actually up to?
2: So, and that's important. I mean, that's what people don't maybe understand about historians is it's not just pulling facts out of documents. It's taking a step back and saying, okay, what the hell does this mean?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it,
2: it, there's a parallel to what intelligence world does. It's, it's, it's going to the archives is the collection stage, right? You're just pulling information out as much as you can. But it doesn't mean anything unless you can sit back and try to understand and interpret it. And that interpretation is the reason that there's 100 books on this. And, you know, the joke is, why do we need more than one book on World War II? It basically kind of lays out the whole war. It's because there is an interpretation element, particularly when you're talking about documents and evidence dealing with intelligence. Because you have to interpret not only what's there, but also what's not there.
0: Right. And I think when I was researching this book, there were definitely moments where I felt the temptations of archival completism, you know, that I was just going to get through this archive and I was going to have everything. And I would keep having to remind myself, I don't have everything. You know, I don't have a clearance. I don't know what's in here. I don't know what was burned before it went into the files. Like I just there's no way that you can um, research this kind of thing in a way that's complete. So um, you get what you can. Um, as a civilian, you also do more declassification requests and try to get more that you can. Uh, but at a certain point, you have to realize, I'm not going to know this. Some of the stuff was never written down in the first place. Some of it was destroyed on purpose. Right. Um, and there's just going to be holes. And you have to be okay at some point with sitting with it and realizing, you know what, there's enough information here that I can tell a story about this.
2: Well, I remember looking at the, the official history of the Office of Science, Scientific Intelligence at CIA, and it's multi-volume. And it was written in-house, and it was finally declassified. And so I'm like, oh, it's declassified. I get the chance to look at this. And I'd be reading along, and there's, there's some minor redactions in some of the pages. And you're like, yeah, this is names. This is protecting sources and methods. And then you'd turn the page, and it would say something like, next 77 pages redacted in full. And you just wanted to just launch it into the sun. Because, you know, that's where the good stuff is. That's where the juicy stuff is. And, and of course, you look at that, you say, I can't tell the story now. But we have to, in certain, we have to find ways to fill in the gaps or to be very honest about it and say, look, in 10 years we may know a whole lot more about this and this may be completely obsolete, but I'm going to try to tell the story the best way I know how.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm so glad that you mentioned that um, official history of the OSI because it is great. I mean, it's a really fantastic uh, resource. Uh, But the redactions not only are extensive, but they're also peculiar. And one of the most peculiar ones involves uh, a man by the name of Wallace Brody, who I, I understand you've probably been in Wallace Brody's papers too. Yeah. And you know Brody was the first science advisor at the CIA. His papers are at the Library of Congress. They've been at the Library of Congress for more than 20 years. They're full of fascinating details, including how his cover worked. And yet his name is redacted from the uh, declassified version of the OSI history. So uh, sometimes these things are peculiar. Maybe you have insight into why his name is redacted. I would love to know that. Um, Or maybe it's just another one of these choices that, you know, who knows? Sometimes it's about sources, and other times it's just not clear.
2: Well, sometimes they redact things prior to when other things are released, and they just don't go back and fix it until someone asks them to. Um, or they just say, you know what, they can do whatever they want at Library of Congress and state can say whatever they want, but we're going to do things a different way. It, ours is not the reason why, uh, <laughs> it's just to kind of suck it up and deal with it. Unfortunately, um, let's take a step back. I mean, let's go back about a hundred years because I think that any conversation about this probably needs to start with Trofim Lysenko. Uh, the, there are a lot, of, a lot of people out there that know this name. There are some. Uh, he pops up every so often when you're talking about Soviet science. Um, but he really kind of underpins this conversation. And he, you know, he was the boogeyman for the West of, like, the best thing to point to for how messed up Soviet science was. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the basics. If we can introduce Lysenko and, like, Senkoism to those out there listening.
0: Yeah, so even if you haven't heard the name Lysenko, you may have heard the phrase Lysenkoism. It's a phrase that people often use when they say that uh, science is being controlled by politics. Um, and where it comes from is there was an Ukrainian agronomist by the name of Trofim Lysenko who had some, let's call them unorthodox ideas, about uh, uh, heredity in plants. Um, and the details of what he thought aren't super important. It involved uh, increasing the uh, production of wheat um, and the hardiness of wheat in winter climates, um, but the main thing to understand here is that he contrasted his views on it with what he described as the Western approach to genetics. So his views were supposed to, were supposedly consistent with dialectical materialism, and were uh, he was working on wheat, he was going to save the Soviet people from famine. Whereas the American researchers in uh, Thomas Morgan's lab in Columbia, uh, they were working on fruit flies and abstract questions about genes and chromosomes, and Lysenko even doubted that genes existed. So pretty soon, all all of Western genetics was really being tarred with this brush of Morgan Mendelism. And mainstream genetics really fell out of favor in the Soviet Union. That reached its peak in 1948 when the, so- when the Communist Party actually endorsed his views. Stalin personally endorsed Lysenko's views um, in a very real way establishing a party line in science. Um, and that happened just at the same moment that the United States and the Soviet Union were really ramping up their propaganda campaigns e- against each other. Um, and so the timing of that um, combined with some prior experiences of the American geneticists who had spent some time in the Soviet Union. Um, meant that in the West, everybody saw what was happening in the Soviet Union and they drew um, fairly extreme conclusions to say this is what happens to science under communism. Right. The science is inevitably controlled by the states. It's, it's mind control and anybody who doesn't agree is going to get arrested or shot or your research is going to move underground. Um, And that became the central defining trope of how Americans talked about science in the Soviet Union, um, at least through the 1960s.
2: Because you saw, I mean, Modern Arms and Free Men, very popular book. You have Sam Goodsmith writing kind of his all background, talking about science in totalitarian state doesn't work. Uh, You have everything from the bulletin of the atomic scientists dedicating an entire issue to Lysenkoism. Um, You know, they're a physics journal, and they focus on Soviet biology because this idea of this difference between the way things are done in the West and the way things are done in the United States, or sorry, in the Soviet Union. Uh, and that's coming, of course, out of World War II, where you have an authoritarian society in the Nazis who also applied certain things, certainly with eugenics and other kind of scientific Nazification of science, um, where this belief was overwhelming. I mean, again, it wasn't just with biologists. it was It, it was turned into a broad indictment of Soviet science.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I would add to that list of people who are writing about this, uh, James Conant, uh, Jim Conant, who uh, is both known as um, a scientific administrator and a political official. He was High Commissioner of Occupied Germany for a while. But he was also really influential in shaping the history uh, and philosophy of science because he, uh, uh, Thomas Kuhn, who wrote the structure of scientific revolution, studied with him at Harvard. So um, you have this whole cluster of people who are basically putting together almost a folk philosophy of science, that science inevitably works better under freedom than it does under totalitarianism, um, that uh, the conditions of the West would uh, facilitate scientific uh, research and scientific achievement, and that these, these systems went together, and that you couldn't really have one without the other.
2: Well, and if you look at kind of what science is, it's messy. Yes. Right. It, a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of dead ends. Even a scientific machine like the Manhattan Project went through just lots of mistakes. But mistakes in science aren't really mistakes. They're learning experiences and stuff. And I guess the argument was not a guess. I know the argument was that in a totalitarian state, you couldn't make those mistakes. You kind of you had to. Uh, it had to be less messy. It had to be more straightforward. And that's not the way science is.
0: Yes, and. Um, It's also that um, by talking about the messiness, and this was particularly Conant's take on it, but talking about the messiness would be a way to uh, combat building science from received authority. So it's, again, this Lysenko issue showing that uh, science just doesn't come down sort of wholly formed from one person's head. Instead, that it's a group activity Mm -hmm. that people are doing and that it is going to be messy and there's going to be mistakes um, and to be suspicious anytime that there's one single right answer.
2: Well, that's the way American and Western science looked at the Soviets. That there was, however, a problem here in the West was that the state itself, in our case, had a bit of a suspicious view of that viewpoint. That um, there was a this could have been a way to where we took scientific internationalism and scientific method in the right way and kind of sent it into the stratosphere, but the U.S. government gets in the way in many cases because of the belief a lot of these scientists in international cooperation and internationalism. I mean, not just the nuclear scientists who formed the Federation of Atomic Scientists, which is now the Federation of American Scientists, who called for, like, the Baruch Plan and other things like that of trying to internationalize nuclear weapons, but also this idea that there was this cross-border cooperation, that many of these people were involved in left-leaning thoughts back in the 1930s. And combine that with the House Un-American Activities Committee and Lady McCarthyism, And you run into some real issues in promoting science here in the West.
0: The United States absolutely wanted it both ways. It yeah. wanted to promote itself as being the champion of international cooperation. It also um, explicitly theorized that kind of international cooperation as being the best way to collect scientific intelligence. And it simultaneously didn't want its scientists talking to communists. Um, and right, you can't which, do all of those things together. <laughs> well, you can't do all those things, particularly
2: when like the, the most important scientists in other countries may have communist communists. I mean, Frederick Juliet Curie is a great example of this, where... He literally was a card card carrying communist, like a member of the communist absolutely, party. Absolutely, absolutely. And he was the most important scientist in France, um, not only during World War II, but certainly in the Cold War as well. And then you look at someone like Oppenheimer, and I think that you know, again, the conventional wisdom is that the Oppenheimer case in 1954 was the turning point in the way. But that's that's even too little too late. You look at someone like Edward Condon before that, and even some of the even some that precedes that as people going, uh oh. I don't really like how this direction is going.
0: Yeah, I definitely see the turning point in uh, the spring of 1948. And you mentioned Edward Condon. There were a whole series of accusations that were being lobbied against Ed Condon. His position at the time was as head of the National Bureau of Standards. And so in that role, he had um, a lot of access to atomic information and was involved with um, uh, information on on uranium Um, and... His reputation became so toxic that that's actually part of why this this person, Wallace Brody, that I mentioned earlier, had to leave the CIA. Mm -hmm. Um, Brody's appointment was at the Bureau of Standards. His cover appointment was at the Bureau of Standards. And Condon's reputation became so toxic that when Brody wanted to spend three weeks in his job uh, because the other um, heads of the Bureau of Standards were going to be out of town, and he seemed like the natural person to lead it, um, that the, the folks of the CIA basically said, no, it's embarrassing. We cannot be associated with anything that has to do with Ed Condon. Just the sense of fear was so strong and overwhelming.
2: Let's talk about Wallace Brody. Let's talk about science at the CIA, right? I think that's, you know, people maybe today understand that there's a large contingent within CIA that does science and technology. People may understand that science, in a broad sense, is an important intelligence target whether it's Iranian nuclear weapons or what's happening with biological chemical weapons or even some of the basics with artificial intelligence, you know, if you consider math and computer science as science, which I think people do, it's obvious today that intelligence about a nation's scientific prowess is important. That wasn't always the case. And CIA took a while to kind of figure out science was important. The Office of Scientific Intelligence, as you mentioned, was created until 1949, like Two months before the Soviets detonate their first atomic bomb, which timing's not great. Four <laughs> years earlier would have been even better or, you know, when the CIA was founded. But Brody was an interesting person when it comes to this. This is somebody who kind of did walk that line, that kind of the habit both ways to where he was a respected member of the community, but also somebody that understood the, the needs of national security.
0: Yeah, Wallace Brody is an interesting guy for lots of reasons, and not just in his role. I mean, he's he's an interesting person. He's uh, one of triplets. Uh, He was from Walla Walla, Washington, so he didn't fit that image of the kind of elite East Coast establishment that we we often associate with the early CIA. Um, And his job at the CIA wasn't his first work. It wasn't his first position in intelligence. During uh, the war, uh, he had been at the Paris Office of the Office of Scientific Research and Development, so he was involved with Project Alsos. Um, and after the war he was working in Navy intelligence in California. Um, So, you know, his various jobs were in some ways indicative of how decentralized scientific intelligence was. Um, because of the role of things like the bomb and radar during World War II, a lot of the senior foreign policy makers really thought scientific intelligence was one of the most important kinds of intelligence to have. And it was decentralized among so many different institutions. Uh, Not only the various military institutions, but the new AEC had its own intelligence. So Wallace Brody came to the CIA with incredibly ambitious plans. He had a vision really for a global panopticon of science. Um, in which he was going to uh, build a biographical register of the names and of names and institutions of all scientific and technical personnel, sort of everywhere in the world.
2: Right, with scientific order of battle. Yes, a scientific order
0: of battle, and uh, it was going to involve uh, hopefully translations of almost every scientific article published. I mean, it's uh, maybe you could do it now, I guess, with um, the information technologies that we have now. But it was a remarkably ambitious vision of what might constitute scientific intelligence in 1947. Even putting aside the inner several rivalries, and when you combined the CIA being a new agency uh, with uh, sort of the over-ambitious nature of the plans, this was an office that uh, didn't go very well at first. Uh, he, he had a lot of difficulty staffing the office if that two-volume Office of Scientific History, um, uh, Office of Scientific Intelligence uh, uh, report is to be believed. He had trouble even getting clearances for his own people he, and, and possibly even for himself. Uh, the office was understaffed and he lasted there for uh, only about 15 months.
2: Well, there's a there's a two-way street when it comes to f- get recruiting people. It's not only that the government doesn't trust the scientists, but the scientists don't trust the government. They, they've Many of them had been working for the government during the war. They're ready to go back to their universities and do normal teaching and research work. And Others just did not want to operate under those security considerations. I mean, science again is supposed to be free and open and you're being asked to not do that
0: Right, and I think here we start to see some really interesting things about personal networks. Wallace Brody was a chemist, and a lot of the early intelligence uh, figures were chemists. And in part, that's because of their networks with a uh, with a man named Roger Adams, who was at the University of Illinois, um, who was clearly on board for this kind of work and, and uh, clearly made clear to his students that this was respectable work to do. Um, And they became kind of a closed network for where you could uh, nominate people from. And so at the State Department, many of the early science attaches were chemists. It almost felt like a chemist club
2: And with all due respect to chemistry, this is a time when you need physicists.
0: You do, but chemists are also less suspicious. Yes. And that was part of the idea, was that if you sent out an an atomic physicist on the international stage in 1948, everyone would assume that he was probably trying to collect intelligence. And if you sent a chemist, well, maybe, maybe not. Who knows?
2: (laughs) One of the the fascinating things, there there are a couple of national security directives that talks about, as the CIA is being formed, who's going to be in charge of what. And it goes through, like, political intelligence it would be the State Department. This is for analytical stuff. Treasury would deal with kind of economic intelligence. And it would go down the list and be very specific about who was in charge of what. Until it got to scientific intelligence, where it was just like, eh, whoever the hell wants to do it can do it. <laughs> and this is not just once. There are several times where you see this directive coming on the National Security Council after it's formed in 47, where they just have no idea what to do with scientific intelligence. And then combine that, well... The Eberstadt and Dulles committees are yelling, hey, we need to do something about this. But even that and even the formation of the OSI is not really enough to bring these all together in a place where you can actually centralize this.
0: Yeah, there are two really important early National Security Council intelligence directives. The first is NSCID-8. Uh, which was basically Brody's suggestion to create this international registry of scientific and technical personnel. So he didn't get his full scientific order of battle, but at least he got an NSC ID that said, yes, this is a this is a goal we should do. Um, but shortly after that one, there was another one called NSC ID 10 that actually assigned the State Department primary responsibility for collecting um, information on basic science. Again, with the honestly fairly reasonable uh, realization that a lot of the information that they were looking for was in the open literature. Mm-hmm. Um and as we all know, a lot of intelligence collection is not top secret stuff. It's um who's doing what at what institute, what is you know, what is this country good at? What are they investing in? Um and so NSC ID ten actually assigned that job to the State Department. But the State Department wasn't um, better institutionally positioned to collect that information than the CIA was, and in some ways worse Mm -hmm. uh, because everybody could see what they were doing. And again, this job involved talking to communists and Congress just wasn't having it.
2: There's another fascinating figure that you bring up that there's been some books written about, and and it's always fun to read about Lloyd Berkner. This is someone who actually understood that dichotomy between open source and closed source. And when he wrote an article, Science and Relations, it had a classified annex to it which really talked about the covert side of doing intelligence collection on science.
0: This report, Science and Foreign Relations, is a fascinating document. And for years, historians have really talked about, you know, it has a secret appendix. Um, And the the appendix is important, and I'll get to that in a minute. But the remarkable thing about it is that you don't even need the secret appendix. I mean, the the, the main article, and it was published, it was excerpted uh, in places like the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, is extraordinarily clear that um, facilitating international scientific cooperation would be in the national interest for any number of reasons. Um, but the classified appendix makes clear that one of those reasons is intelligence collection and it asserts that the best way to collect that information is to do it from private scientists who may or may not know that that's what they're up to Mm -hmm. so send them out on the international stage in fact create opportunities for them to go on the international stage and then debrief them uh, maybe by another scientist uh, so that they're still not quite on top of what's happening Um, and you know, it, it's in some ways a brilliant insight that this is the best way to gather this information: is to send scientists out to be scientists and to to mix and mingle. Um, but it also required trying to figure out which scientists were going abroad, right. and uh, that's not something that the United States necessarily had. It was in some ways more feasible in 1950 than it was than it is now. Fewer people traveled internationally. But this is a democracy, and nobody's keeping lists of every time a scientist crosses an international border. Uh, so, so a complicated plan.
2: Something else Berkner talked about was something that actually I toyed with at the very beginning of grad school as a potential topic, and that's the scientific attachés. Um, I talked to several of the now very old uh, veterans of this program, and one thing I had trouble with was, and that's obviously what they had trouble with at the time, was figuring out what the hell did they do? were they ambassadors for science or were they intelligence people? And to a man, and they were all men at the time, everyone I talked to said I was never involved with the CIA. I never did intelligence work. If I collected anything intelligence-wise, it was accidental, which we know is total nonsense. But the trouble I think that Berkner had and that the State Department at the time had with his program was they couldn't define it. They really didn't know what these people were gonna do.
0: No they they absolutely did not did not there's some uh, for those of us who didn't have a chance to talk to these guys before they passed um, there are some wonderful oral histories uh, with many of these first generation of science attachés um, at the American Institute of Physics mm-hmm. in College Park. And they're available online. You can read them. They are fascinating reading. Um, and they all say similar things. But they also tell stories about how they would routinely meet with intelligence officers in their office and how, they would, um, how the intelligence officers would, would be discreet so that their um, international colleagues wouldn't see them meeting with them. Um, so, you know, they're they're doing a lot of this. One of my favorite documents in researching this um, is a, a diary, uh, kind of an administrative diary from one of the science attachés who was based in Paris. This thing is, it's like a 400-page, you know, single-spaced account of what this guy did. He went to luncheons, he went to concerts and abbeys. Um, there's one account of where he is at a concert in an abbey, and then he goes off and strolls along with a French molecular biologist and asks him, um, so these stories about uh, biological weapons in Korea, do your are your French colleagues believing this? So it's a combination mm-hmm. of, um, you know, some of the things that we just think of as diplomacy, that your job is in some ways to grease the wheels and, and make people um, uh, in, increase fellow feeling. Uh, but part of his job was also quite clearly to collect information on kind of how the French were feel how French scientists were feeling about Western science. Were there opportunities to work together?
2: Well, and Burtner so the the attache program focused mainly on Western countries that we had friendly relations with. But Bertner was focusing on putting one in Moscow. Right. Let's put one in Prague. Right. Let's put one in Beijing, right? The idea of places where intelligence collection would have been a little more complicated, a little more difficult.
0: And, and perhaps more useful.
2: Well, much, much more useful, <laughs> of course. And then if you compare it to the other attache, the military attache, who is an overt intelligence collector, right? Everyone knows that Lieutenant Colonel so and so. Is doing intelligence collection. That's where you kind of walk into this idea that they had to know, they had to understand. Even even the host nations had to understand that this person was there to do intelligence collection.
0: Yes, the desire to say that they weren't doing intelligence collection is quite interesting. And um, you know, lore within this community is that the explicit acknowledgement that that that's that that's what they were doing in the mid-50s is what turned people off from being science attaches later because there was an article um, published somewhere. I think it was reported in Chemical and Engineering News but not reported there um, about kind of the intelligence work that, that these guys were doing. Um, and supposedly that was one of the reasons that it then became difficult to uh, recruit scientists in the, in, in the late 50s. As an aside, CNEN, um, Chemical and Engineering News, is an amazing resource for this because so many of the, um, intelligent, the scientific intelligence officers and the attachés were chemists. Right. The CNEN actually reported on this as trade news. Um, And so you can see I have uh, uh, copies of articles in CNN that include photographs of all the science attachés and listings of their postings. Um, It's kind of an incredible thing to find that in CNN, but that was an unexpected resource that I leaned on more than than I had thought.
2: Well, I didn't want to interrupt you when you were talking earlier, but just that anyone who's thinking about researching this, the AIP, as you mentioned in College Park, not only is it a fascinating resource and a lot of stuff's online, but no one goes there. Like, I I went there several times, and they were just so happy to see me. It was like, what do you want? We'll help you. It's just this unknown resource where they have oral histories from hundreds and hundreds of everyone from, like, the top Manhattan Project scientists to everyone else. So if you're ever in College Park, just don't go to NARA2 if you're doing science stuff. The AIP... They'll be happy to see you. They're very bored there. They want you to come in.
0: Well, I'm, I'm doing research. both of those things on this visit. So yes. um, going out bo- to College Park, uh, to, going to NARA2 and the AIP. So I'm going to try to get it all in.
2: The meat of your book really focuses on psychological operations. And, and PSYOPs is something that we don't normally associate with science. And I think that's why this book kind of really blazes a trail for that conversation. We rarely see science included in these programs, at least overtly. Uh, Again, hundreds of books about psyops during the Cold War. Science is not really part of it. And we've talked about Lysenkoism, obviously, already, and you can see clearly how that works. But support for some of these scientific conferences, for things like Voice of America, for scientific journals, that's all over the place. And you found a lot of it in the archives.
0: Yeah, and I I barely touched it. And I think part of why I saw, why I was able to see this uh, was because, as you've kind of alluded to, I use one of the broader definitions of psyops. Um, And sometimes that definition, which includes things like sending people to international conferences can, can seem really jarring to readers who aren't in that world. But in some ways, this is an actor's category that if you read um, the discussions of what psychological warfare can be between 1949 and 1950, you're thinking of, say, any development aid as psychological warfare. Um, and so if you're willing to... Um, go with that and it feels uncomfortable to think of that kind of work as psychological warfare. Suddenly the role of all of these kinds of scientific programs as part of broader psychological warfare, broader propaganda, particularly propaganda of the deed, becomes much more obvious and fairly unsettling because a lot of these programs are doing things that, you know, on the whole, if you're going to do psychological warfare, things like textbook translation don't seem as harmful as some yeah. other things. So it's it's a topic that as a writer, I often felt fairly ambivalent about. But absolutely, they can sit, the people who were paying for these programs thought of them as psychological warfare programs. So I think it's a legitimate decision to call them that.
2: Right, you're not just making this up. There was the International Organizations Division at CIA, yep. which ran these operations. Yep. I mean, if CIA is seeing them as yep. PSYOPs, then as a historian, it's hard for us not to.
0: Indeed, but it's still uncomfortable.
2: Well, sure, yeah. And it's even harder to prove. I mean, if you talk about the Golden Jubilee, where the documents just may not exist, where you look at it and go, this has to be a CIA program. But there's just nothing put down in writing. It's just one of these, has to be one of those frustrating things.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned that, because in my heart of hearts, some part of me still thinks, yeah, this has to be. On the other hand, uh, looking at some of the activities that members of the non-communist left were doing on their own, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it really was a group of um, American geneticists who thought, gosh, we really, really want to put together an elaborate conference that doesn't mention Lysenko by name that's all about combating Lysenkoism. Who knows? Um, you know, it feel, it absolutely feels like um, one of these kind of cultur- uh, covert cultural operations, but I can't prove it. And I and I ultimately said in the book, I can't prove this. However, almost everybody involved with it was working with these other agencies at one point or another, which is telling.
2: Yeah, I mean, but it's, <laughs> it's telling, but it's the trouble that we run into is that, you know, the idea of just because they're working together doesn't necessarily mean that everything they're being done, it's just, it's tricky across the board when it comes to not only intelligence history, which is hard enough as it is, but also this is multi-layered cover corporations, cover organizations that were built in such a way to prevent people like us from knowing what they're doing.
0: Absolutely, but I also think that um, in some ways getting too fixated on was it or not um, can distract us from what's going on here, because we do know that there were some private groups that were doing these kinds of activities on their own. Um, And they're all of a piece. Um, And so both creating confusion about who's actually paying for them, but setting aside the possibility that some of them really were private activities. Um, You know, there's a reason that we call this a consensus era, uh, where many private citizens were fairly on board for doing anti-communism. And particularly in the case of genetics, where they knew some of the American geneticists knew some of the Soviet geneticists who had lost their jobs. Or um, their lives, lives. right? Um, And so they were personally invested in this in a different way, maybe, than some of the people who were involved in art campaigns. So um, I wish I could know the answer to that question, but in terms of um, setting this up as a way for talking about it in the Cold War, in some ways it doesn't matter. Which can also be kind of a challenging thing to say out loud, but I've really come to believe that it can be a distraction to think about was this one explicitly covert or was this one a group of activities of private citizens? You know, it's really hard to say.
1: Right. We'll be right back after this.
2: Let's talk about the Congress of Cultural Freedom, the CCF. You talked about the Mighty Warlitzer, which is kind of the Bible on this, but it doesn't get into science. Right. And certainly a lot of information about art and music festivals and journals and other things like that, Shell companies design designed to cover this up. But the scientific element is something that hasn't been covered.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And part of it is that um, I will say, Uh, that the Congress for Cultural Freedom science programs uh, were particularly ill-conceived in the first decade, um, and that they basically failed uh, for the first decade. Um, They were a different, the CCF is often known mostly by its journals, um, and the journals for science were set up differently, so they weren't based on national committees. Um, They weren't national cultural journals. Instead, this was an international journal of science and freedom that was based in Manchester, England, uh, out of the cottage of a man named George Polanyi, who was the son of the polymath Michael Polanyi, who is the brother of the famous economist Carl Polanyi. Um, So an interesting group of people. Um, but this journal was never published on a regular basis. The most successful things that the uh, Committee for Science and Freedom did was that they hosted um, a large international meeting in Hamburg in 1953 on science and freedom. And I think to the to the people who were creating the Congress of Cultural Freedom, they really wanted science to be one of the major thrusts of it, in part because of these concerns about mm-hmm. Um And administratively, they just could never pull it off. It seems like they, they may not have been working with the right people. They may not have been working with people who were particularly suited to direction. Um, but the elaborate managerial schemes of the Congress for Cultural Freedom also limited their ability to tell the Polanis to do their job because they weren't really working for them. Right. Um, they were supposedly private individuals. They were supposedly volunteers.
2: But even big government programs in the 1950s kind of fall on their face. Science Adams for Peace, the IGY, Lofty ideals, sure. big goals, but no real success stories. I mean, the IGY arguably is the reason the Soviets beat us into space. It was Sputnik. Uh, Adams for Peace was based on a complete misunderstanding of what uranium is and how it can actually be refined in 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 numbers. The assumption was the Soviets had no uranium kind of this dissemination of, of scientific information to the highest levels was just not there. And again, somewhat, like it's all brand new in the 1950s, right, we, atomic power had only been around for not even a decade at this point. But even see where there's a lot of government money behind it that these, these programs kind of fall on their faces.
0: Sure. At the same time, um, some people felt that the problem with Atoms for Peace was that it was too successful because it was such a massive propaganda campaign uh, promising things like energy too cheap to meter uh, when those technologies didn't actually exist. Um, and so the United States was uh, creating a situation in which it was making ludicrous promises uh, that would also uh, be the opposite of non-proliferation kind of at the, you know, at the same time. Um, and some of the lessons that were learned from Adams from peace absolutely shaped what came later um, when the United States really uh, embraced propaganda involving science in a different way so some of the rules about it needs to be realistic right. the promises need to be realistic so that we can deliver um, but it was a, a massive campaign and very successful in terms of building some goodwill uh, but not it wasn't as successful in the original point of Atoms for Peace, if, they, if the idea was to shunt off Soviet uranium. It didn't quite work for that.
2: Well, and then it runs into headlong into Sputnik, which, again, any, any Cold War history book you read better includes Sputnik because it certainly transformed the way we thought about the world. But on the science and certainly on the scientific diplomacy level, all of a sudden we're scrambling to try to convince people that we're good at this and the Soviets aren't better at this than we are. You talk a lot about the idea that other countries started looking to the Soviet Union as leaders in science, not just in rocketry, but across the board.
0: As a writer, you couldn't ask for a better narrative device than Sputnik because the American programs about um, science had been kind of uh, lingering and and languishing. Uh, But when Sputnik happened, everyone freaked out. Um, And the realization that other countries were looking to the Soviet Union, Um, USIA was immediately picking up uh, that... Um, Their their foreign counterparts were often drawing on Soviet press releases instead of American press releases. Um, And so suddenly you get all of these science advisory committees popping up. Uh, You get science attachés start being appointed again. Wallace Brody, of all people, becomes the new science advisor to the State Department. Um, The USIA declared 1958 the year of science. So the United States really um, kind of doubled down and said, yes, we are going to make science the thing but they wanted to distinguish it between uh, science and technology because they acknowledged that they were unlikely to beat the Soviets at their own game. So the ways that the Americans wanted to define it was again through cooperation. We will be the best cooperators. Um, It's cynical and brilliant because if you are arguing that you are the best international cooperator, then any scientific achievement anywhere, if you had any role in making that happen, you can sort of claim credit for. Um, so it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit cynical, uh, but in some ways hopeful because it really wasn't about that particular way of talking about science. wasn't about destruction. It wasn't about weapons. There are some truly idealistic statements about the potential for uh, doing science and thinking about science across borders in a way that, that's unusual for this period.
2: Well, one thing you mentioned a little bit earlier that I thought was an extraordinarily smart response to Sputnik was the idea of textbook translation. If you want to reform curriculum in other countries, which means if you want to reform it to the point where they're thinking like us and about scientific freedom and about the Western way of doing science, what way better than to get them in schools when they're relatively young or in their college? And you look at this again on face value as like an idealistic thing, like we're going to help people translate biology textbooks into the language so they can understand biology, run by an organization in many cases called the Asia Foundation. Boy, does this sound like a Nobel Peace Prize level thing? Until you realize, the Asia Foundation was formed and funded by the CIA. There we go. Yeah, I mean, this 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 is as good as it gets when it comes to these covert operations.
0: Yeah, I love the story of the textbooks in part because it's so weird. I opened the book with a story that uh, the executive director of this textbook program told me. Um, he told many people this story, uh, but. This is a story that when he was in a uh, high school classroom in Hong Kong, watching students dissect earthworms, um, the students weren't using local earthworms, but they were studying with British textbooks because they were of course studying for British exams. And the local earthworms didn't match the textbooks. So he watched these students label these worms according to their textbooks. And for Grobman, this showed the dangers of, uh, that these children were being exposed to the dangers of communist infiltration because labeling their worms properly was an opportunity to inculcate the values of Western science, uh, basically lysenkoism in action. But so uh, the Asia Foundation also thought, wow, this is, a, this is a great opportunity. And so the Asia Foundation, which I like to think of during this period as sort of a cross between USAID and the Rockefeller Foundation, but um, run by the CIA. Right. I think that's a, it's a useful way to, to conceive of it. The Asia Foundation thought, hey, these textbooks, they're doing what we want to do. They uh, encourage development, they encourage rational thinking. They can also be used to build the capacity of young teachers and and building democratic organizations. So they bankrolled a lot of uh, translations of these textbooks across Asia. But what makes the textbooks a super interesting story, thinking of this question of does it really matter if it's overt or covert? Overt government agencies also funded exactly the same kinds of translations. And international agencies like UNESCO also founded these textbooks, uh, funded translations of these textbooks, as did the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation. And all of those translations look the same. The CIA CIA funded ones don't have an added layer of propaganda, right? right? Um, It's all part of a broader way to encourage international development in the way that the United States wanted to see it happen.
2: If you talk about success, you say in the book by 1971, 35 countries were using adapted textbooks. I mean, that's. That's as good as it gets.
0: It, you know? it really is. I'm uh, slightly uncomfortable with thinking in the language of success for these kinds of programs, but but if I were to point to a successful program uh, for cultural diplomacy involving science, these textbook programs were enormously influential and really just transformed the way that biology was taught in high school classrooms around the
2: globe. Well, and these, this is in the battleground of the Cold War, too, Absolutely. right? These are the developing countries, the third world, you know, for lack of the term we use at the time, the, the global south, the places where both the Soviet Union and the United States were fighting for kind of this zero-sum game of the Cold War of trying to win hearts and minds throughout this area. And even without being overt, like this is the American way of doing science, if you go, if you denounce dogma, if you denounce kind of a rigid way of doing science and kind of understand it as being this kind of free and open and messy way of doing things, then it's not like become like us, it's, it's turning people into scientists the way we do it in the West.
0: Yeah, and the fascinating thing about these books is that, you know, they were developed in the United States for an American audience, um, but they also wanted to transform American children in the same way, really. Um, So it's about turning children all over the world into scientists. The American developers would always say that for 8 out of 10 American high school students, biology was the only science course they would ever take. So they saw these books as their one and only opportunity to teach citizenship through science. So these books are all about seeing science as rational, having respect for scientific authority, a kind of understanding the way of science in the world and the role of science in a modern society.
2: Might be a fun collector's item to try to get all the different translations sure. from around the world. And
0: well, they all have wonderful logos. Their colophon is, is this uh, caribou. Um, and once or twice I've seen pictures of them. They have uh, different animals for different countries.
2: Then it all kind of fell apart. Um, Talk about how the cover got blown for some of these organizations. Um, a small, inconsequential, until this point, independent journal called Ramparts blew the lid off of a lot of these programs.
0: Well, to me, the most remarkable thing about it is that the covers lasted as long as they did, because these kinds of covert partnerships with private groups, relied on hundreds, maybe thousands of people having information that they shouldn't have, including college students. That's what ultimately uh, tipped Ramparts off, is that college students had been made witting because of uh, uh, the CIA's relationship with the National Student Association. And while that strategy might have worked in 1958, uh, by the mid-1960s with student opposition to Vietnam, that was simply not tenable and students were no longer interested in keeping the CIA's secrets. And by 1966 and 1967, journalists were also no longer interested in keeping the CIA's secrets. So a lot of the story of the covers being blown in 1967 is about people beginning to print information that wasn't quite an open secret, but wasn't a particularly well-held secret. Um, And when you're reading newspapers in the spring of 1967, it almost feels like, reading newspapers last year during, um, you know, some reporting, say, on the, on the Mueller report, right, that it, almost every day there was a new breaking story about the CIA was funding X, the CIA was funding labor, the CIA was funding art, the CIA was funding intellectuals, day after day after day.
2: Well, that was true for years at that yes. point, too, because this is pre-Watergate, this is pre Pro, and all the different things about the intelligence community. That was a dark period, certainly, for agencies, Um, who did intelligence, whether it was CIA or FBI or any others. And that talk about you had this tenuous relationship between science and the state. It basically stops existing at that point, except for at the very highest levels of like NASA and other places or in DARPA. It's hard to maintain this kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's an informal relationship when the cover's been blown so vividly across the world?
0: Well, yes and no. I think um, with, in science in the late 1960s, a lot of that conversation more involved military agencies and classified research on weaponry. Um, uh, activists and protesters were very concerned about scientists' direct contribution to the war machine. But the thing about science in these, uh, in these cultural programs is that the Asia Foundation was, uh, basically managed its press better than a lot of the other organizations. Um, Spying on domestic agencies had already started to happen during that period of time. Um, And so the Johnson administration was aware that Ramparts was probably going to run a story on the Asia Foundation. And the trustees released a press release, a very cautiously worded press release that acknowledged, yes, we've received some money, Uh, from these agencies. But what's strange is that um, the newspapers accepted that for them uh, in a way that they didn't accept it for the other agencies. The Asia Foundation's blown cover wasn't front page news, it was page 17 Mm -hmm. news. And many of the scientists who had been working with them didn't seem particularly uh, perturbed by this. Uh, Very few of the relationships ended. Anthropology um, is a little different, uh, but for most of the other fields, most of the scientists didn't object much. And when I try to understand why scientists responded so differently than some of the other fields, I can only assume that it's because they've been working so closely with the state for so long um, that they just didn't see the difference. You know, American scientists were very deeply embedded in power structures during that period of time. And it's true that um, they weren't necessarily, these agencies didn't necessarily use a heavy hand in directing these scientist actions. Um, And so to the scientists involved, they said, well, you know, we have to get money from lots of places. Um, It's unfortunate Mm -hmm. that this is where it came from, but that's okay. Um, And there was never a collective reckoning as there was with, say, artists or with poets.
2: Well, science got so big in the post-Cold War period. I mean, it wasn't like people are tinkering in a basement workshop. Science, especially talking about physics and other levels, it's massive.
0: Yeah, there's you, a name. They call it big science. Yeah,
2: you need millions and millions of dollars. And I guess everyone kind of understood that you couldn't do that without the government. Still to this day, grants to universities coming in the, you know sometimes the billion-dollar range. Sure, you're going to work on a program that might not be necessarily straightforward science. and might have national security implications. But that's the only way that you're going to get the money to do your, your research.
0: Right. And the scientists themselves kind of acknowledged that and were remarkably thoughtful at the same time that they were ambivalent about it. Interestingly enough, some of the best analysis and best thinking on what it means to do big science in a democracy was published in Minerva, which was also a Congress for Cultural Freedom Journal. It was the successor to the failed Committee on Science and Freedom Bulletin. Um, so it's, it's layered and complicated. Mm.
2: The book is called Freedom's Laboratory, The Cold War Struggle, for the Soul of Science. The author is Audre Wolf. Audrey thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us at SpyCast.
0: Thanks so much for having me on the show.
2: Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter At INTL Spycast. That's INTL Spycast. Talk to you next week.
1: Hey, listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K Cyberwire network